The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad, it's just a show. In a world where superheroes made the leap from the comic book page to the silver screen, two men created a podcast, but then didn't talk about it at all. What a twist! This is Totally Super. Welcome to Totally Super, where we review every superhero movie ever made, and poor M. Night Shyamalan cannot escape the portrayal of him in Robot Chicken. I think there's I, nothing I'm to sorry, the, it's, the man can do. It's, it's, I, I feel dumber every time I say the phrase, but I'm going to keep saying the phrase because it's just what funny. What a twist! What a twist! Yeah. Um, uh, we are reviewing today uh, the, uh, do we call it a classic? That's the first question I guess we could say. It is the film that came out in 2000, Unbreakable, uh, as part of a trilogy of films uh, that's going to be called the East, Draw, East Rail 177 Trilogy by M. Night Shyamalan um, that started with Unbreakable, moved on to Split, which was not a comic book movie. It's going to be our first non-comic book movie other than Solo that we've talked about. And then I haven't even up, seen Split yet. I'm excited to watch it. And then Glass coming up uh, in January. So, uh, hey, all you guys who want us to review Aquaman and Spider-Verse, guess what? We're doing Unbreakable because that's, that's how we roll. We're not going to do what everyone else does. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, we are going to cover this film, which was a follow-up to The Sixth Sense. Now, everyone, so you saw The Sixth Sense, I assume, when it first came out, right? I did. And, not when it first came uh, out, but I have seen it since. All right. So I was there... I was, and I guess, like, I am a couple of years older than you, and so this was right, right as I was graduating college was when, uh, was when this came out, which meant the Sixth Sense came out probably the, the year after I got married, um, when I was still a sophomore in college, and I loved it. I was, it was not spoiled for me. I was blown away by it. I was, I was like, this guy's the next Hitchcock. It was amazing. And at the same time, we watched the fizzle out of the Batman movies, right? The Batman Forever, Batman and Robin. Everything's kind of going mm -hmm. down the tanks. So now we have this movie that is the follow-up to The Sixth Sense, where the twist is, even from the moment the begin movie begins, it's a movie about comic books. Now, for those of you, who, for our younger listeners who can't remember what that was like for a comic book nerd like me. Just incredible. Just the idea that here's a movie that's serious that is about comic books was something that I couldn't even fathom was happening. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. But what was your first experience seeing the film? Uh, I think I remember seeing this film in uh, the summer between, I think, my junior and my senior year in college. Uh, I watched it on a small, uh, non-flat screen television, standard definition, uh, in the living room of the dorm, or not the dorm, the apartment that I was staying at for the summer. Um, I had just seen Sixth Sense, uh, so then this was an immediate follow-up. And uh, so it was definitely, it was one of those films that, you know, you just kind of, I watched in the middle of the afternoon uh, in a living room. Uh, but I really enjoyed it the first time around and going back to watch it again. The thing for me about this in particular was you are, it's, I, I would dare say that you are now more of a comic book reader than I am. At the mm -hmm. time, this was not true. At the time that this came out, I was, I mean, comic books were my thing. It was, it was, and we've talked about it before. I talked about it when I did the Stan Lee retrospective a couple of episodes ago, that comic books were the first thing that I ever kind of hitched my wagon to, to say, yeah, that's the thing that I like. That's the thing that I do. And so when Batman came out in 1989, it was such a giant deal, not just for the world, but for me personally, that there was a movie that was for me, finally. Batman, do you remember the 1989 Batman? That very dark, serious take on Batman that that movie is. Of course, we all think it's camp today, right? But at the time, I couldn't believe we were getting that. But this comes out, and I had no idea, Arthur, in the marketing of this film, that this was going to be 
a comic book movie. It's the if you look at the cover to it, it's a picture of Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson, and then a broken line, and then the picture of Bruce Willis in the background with the rain on it. And there's I no indication. It both is and isn't a comic book film. Uh, in that, yes, it definitely has a lot to do with comic books. Um, so in that sense, like I'm I'm not disputing that fact at all. Uh, but it it certainly lacks a number of the tropes that you would expect from a traditional quote unquote comic book film. Interesting. Uh, you know what? Let's just jump it's to a the mu- end. I mean, what, it's what, it's what, a yeah, drama. What, what it's a sl- uh, so here's the thing. You know, different genres can be associated. I mean, and this is a there's no exact science to this, but different genres can be associated with different things. Lots of time pacing. Uh, case in point, uh, Logan is. I like to say that's not really a comic book film. That's a western. Um, in the same way, this is a drama, like so many of the shots in this, I mean, this is practically an indie. Uh, so many of the shots in this film are long single camera shots from an interesting angle, but it's just two people talking with huge pauses in between the dialogue. Like they're, I mean, it's every conversation is given a tremendous amount of room to breathe. And that works really well in a drama that worked really well in this film. But it is not what you see in what we expect from comic book films nowadays. Of course, it could also be argued that at the time that this came out, there really wasn't any such thing as a comic book movie genre like there is now. Yeah, there were the Batman films, right? That's what you had. You had the Batman films, and then you had crappy comic book films. And that was it. The Superman films had gone downhill ever since Superman 2. And mm-hmm. then you basically had the the first Batman, which was beloved. The second Batman, which is my favorite, but was not beloved. The third one, which was widely popular, but considered to be like a step down artistically. And the fourth one that everybody hated. And that's yeah. what you had. And then there was, you know, little, you know, things popping up until finally Blade showed up. But even then, was is that really a comic book film is, is arguable. Um, mm-hmm. I would invert what you said. In that, and this is what we talked about when we said we're going to do this film, Marvel and DC and, damn it, Christopher Nolan have a lot to thank this film for. Because this is the first film that I ever remember seeing that had zero camp to it. There was no camp. It took the took what it was saying absolutely seriously. and Very true. It, and at the same time, it was undoubtedly a superhero origin story and a supervillain origin story. Um, it's in the text that that's what it is and that's what it's doing. And when you say this isn't a superhero film, it's a drama, it occurs to me that that's the whole tack that Marvel has now, right? Marvel doesn't, seems like DC's still just doing superhero films. But Marvel is like, okay, here's a superhero film, but it's also a heist film. Here's a superhero film, it's also a John Hughes movie. Here's a superhero film. Yeah, that's Marvel also has done. Marvel has done very well by basically marrying the superhero genre to other genres. So this is the first that said, okay, we're not going to make it. It's going to be superhero in the tech in, in the subtext, but the text and the pacing and everything of the film is going to be this other kind of film. It's going to be. A, a spiritual successor to the sixth sense more than it's mm-hmm. has anything to do with, you know, Batman and Robin. Um, so that's, I mean, it's going to be an interesting thing to talk about, but um, I didn't ask you ahead of time, um, but do you have a plot summary for unbreakable? I do indeed. Yes. So we're trying something different. Um, Justin has, Justin has been putting in the lion's share of doing plot summaries, which is a, uh, which is dull and gritty work sometimes. Uh, so we are thankful to him for that, uh, but uh, for at least the the near future, I'm going to try to take that mantle off of his shoulders so he doesn't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, I'm really excited so, to hear what you're going to do. All right. So with that in mind, this is my plot summary for Unbreakable. Our story begins in 1960, where a baby is born in the dressing room of a department store. The baby clearly has some kind of condition, as its arms and legs were broken before the birth. But before we can learn more, we jump ahead to the present day, where David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis, is on a train bound for Philadelphia. 
As he finishes a conversation where he, although married, kind of hits on another passenger, the train has a horrible derailment. Everyone on board is killed but David. It's a terrible tragedy, but on the plus side, it did save him from an extremely awkward conversation. We discover that David is not just alive but uninjured. Miraculously so. He returns to his life as a security guard for a college football team, and likewise his wife, Audrey, played by Robin Wright, and their adorably doe-eyed son, Joseph, played by Spencer Treat Clark. His marriage is clearly on the rocks, and he seems unhappy with his life. But then, he receives a letter from a business called Limited Edition, with the cryptic message, How often have you been sick? After several scenes of him reflecting on this question and realizing that he hasn't ever taken ill, he goes to Limited Edition to learn more. There he meets Elijah, played by Samuel Mother Lovin' Jackson, who turns out to be the grown version of the poor infant from the start of the film. He is now a rich owner of an art studio devoted to vintage comics. Since his condition, which we'll call extremely breakable bone syndrome, kept him in hospital beds for most of his life, he spent the time reading lots of comic books and has fallen in love with the genre to the extent that he believes that David might himself be someone with powers since he's never been sick or injured. But wait, David said. He was injured once. A car crash in college. It kept him from playing football. Elijah, however, remains a true believer. Okay, this is a little bit more in-depth than the quick one-minute monologue or the one-minute synopsis I'm realizing, but but st- stick with me. We're going places here. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. In the it. following days, David starts testing the theory. He and his son discover he can bench press 350 pounds and he might have some kind of gift where if he touches bad people, he sees a flashback to the bad things that they do. Also, somewhere in there we discover that he almost drowned as a kid, but Elijah makes sense of it by saying his weakness is water, like Superman's kryptonite, only much more abundant on the planet. Maybe someday that same weakness will be uh, maybe someday that same weakness will help us stop an alien invasion, but that's a whole other Shyamalan movie. After a lot of back and forth as to whether David himself believes he is one of the fabled heroes of old, including a harrowing scene where his son threatens to shoot him to prove that he's bulletproof. We need to talk about that scene, by the way, that was awesome. Uh, and a steady improvement in his relationship with Audrey, we see a flashback that reveals that the car accident he was in did not, in fact, injure him. Apparently, he realized that if he had a successful football career, he and Audrey wouldn't be together because reasons? So, in order to end his career before it begins, he fakes his injury because also reasons. What a twist! He admits this to Elijah and decides to actually try using his powers to protect people. He brushes against a janitor in a train station who, as like, hey, this is serious, Justin, stay with me, stay with me here. Sorry, yes. uh, he brushes against a janitor in a train station who, as luck would have it, had just recently invaded a suburban home, killed the parents, and was currently living there keeping the kids captive. David follows him back to the house, where after a fraught climactic battle in the rain, because rain makes things more epic, David triumphs and rescues the children. With a newfound sense of purpose, he also patches up things with Audrey, and lo- all looks well for the family. Until, in the final scene of the film, David visits Elijah and shakes his hand, only to then get a flashback of Elijah having been the one who orchestrated not only the train crash, but two other massive tragedies, all for the purpose of trying to find the one person who was unbreakable. Why? So that Elijah, with his extremely breakable bone syndrome, could prove to himself his own purpose to be the opposite of the unbreakable man, the arch-villain to the hero, say it with me, what a twist! Now, interesting, some versions of the film end with David simply walking out dumbstruck, but other later versions, including the one that I saw last night, actually add freeze-frame text, a la Animal House, explaining that David turned Elijah in and that Elijah now lives in an institute for the criminally insane. Theme. Yeah, I think, I think that that last scene that you're talking, first of all, golf clap for you, sir. Very nice. Very nicely done. Um, uh, okay, I was I, I was bored at work today. Oh, I want you to do this every time now. This is great. It's like watching the movie over again. I love it. Um, uh, uh, and and reasons. Oh, there are things to talk about. There is not a perfect film. Yes. Um, it's not. It's, uh, it's the, not. But it, it still hangs together pretty well. Those freeze frames at the end. So full disclosure, um, I happen to also be listening to a podcast that shall not be named um, that is also covering these films a little bit. So it's, it's tainted my my thoughts about them slightly. Um, mm-hmm. And in uh, in that podcast, they gave this information that the what you see at the end of the film, that's this. If, if you see it at the end of the film, that is the theatrical release. That's what came out to audiences when, if you were to have seen it in theaters, was those things tacked on at the end. Mm-hmm. M. Night Shyamalan hates them. 
So if you've seen a version I, without yeah, it them, it seems so. You've seen a director's it seems so cut. Completely. Yeah, that's. I, I I looked at it, and never in a film has something seemed so clearly. The studio added these in. Uh, yeah, so than that you, moment because nothing if you yeah. see text at the end of a film and the film is not like a biopic like you're you're not finding out what happened to a real person at the end then then that is the studio not loving it but i'll be honest i could see general audiences being kind of bummed about that. i think maybe they i don't know i think oh I think it, it was it a helps. bumming ending but i i I, I actually, I loved it without, I think somehow I ended up seeing it without, so I must have seen the director's cut. Yeah. Um, and I was I was really jolted out of it when I saw the text again. Um, to Just to, to recap, the, uh, the text essentially, it, you know, um, Elijah's doing his final monologue and then David is walking out and then it freezes and says, David uh, led the federal authorities to Elijah's office where they found all this terror, where they found all these blueprints. And then the film keeps going. And then, you know, Elijah delivers that fantastic final line of they called me Mr. Glass, uh, which was I, that. I mean, Shyamalan has some he has some issues as a scriptwriter, but I love watching Shyamalan films because even when he's not the most subtle it is such a delight to watch him do trying to weave his tapestry. And uh, they called me Mr. Glass was definitely an example of that. And then that is completely undercut by a freeze frame of that and then ending with the much less dramatic words of Elijah is now in an institute for the criminally insane. Do, do, do. Everything's fine, guys. Hey, everything's fine. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. We're all good. We're all good. Yeah. It's, it, he's not out there. He's not going to hurt you. You can go home and buy the unbreakable toys. I hate Bruce Willis. Um, and I was ready to fold my arms and despise him. I like young Bruce Willis, but this is right when Bruce Willis started to look like old Bruce Willis. Like the guy in this film mm-hmm. doesn't look like the guy from Die Hard anymore. He just looks like yeah. old Bruce Willis, old bald Bruce Willis. I hate old bald Bruce Willis. I, I honestly think that these films were the worst thing to ever happen to his, if you can call it, craft as an actor in that a good director was like, no, play it subtle. Play it play it really low key. Let's get into it. Let's get quiet. And everybody loved what he did with Sixth Sense and this. So from this point forward, he gives the same performance all the time. And it's oh, always like this. And all because the all so the it's so he was good in so he was good in these two. But yes, then very. he kind of took it too far in his other stuff. Yeah. Um, I have heard, you know, as a Kevin Smith fan, I've heard so many horror stories about about what it's like working with, with Bruce um, and about how he kind of doesn't care. Um, my mm-hmm. brief day that I spent working with Bruce Willis um, as one of like a hundred extras, but still it was cool to be there. Um uh, watching him sort of phone it in as Justin Long is next to him acting his pants off, trying his best to carry, this is the fourth Die Hard film, um, mm-hmm. is, it's such a shame. And so it's, when I saw old Bruce Willis in this film, and I haven't seen an old Bruce Willis film, I'm trying to think the last time I saw one, where I like where I saw him in this stage of his career, and I think there was one a couple of years ago, and I can't tell you what it was that I kind of liked him in. I was like, hi, oh, I was surprised that I kind of liked him here. Um, but he, like, after Die Hard 5, which is a film that I remain, you know, how, I mean, you've known me long enough. You ever see me get angry at a film where I just stay angry at it forever? Like What? It, you? Never. Yes. I'm still angry at Die Hard 5 for, for being literally, literally the worst film Maybe the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind. It's like <laughs> that. It's like that and the plague. Those two things. That yeah. and typhus are those. Those are the bad things. <laughs> it's a good day to die hard. It's not a good day to watch that film. So I walk, came into Unbreakable, arms crossed. Um, especially mm. since everybody loves the fir- the third Die Hard movie, and I think it's okay. I don't. I feel like it breaks the franchise. So you saw. And, so wait. So you saw Unbreakable long after it came out. 
or are you oh, talking no, saw, about coming, walking back uh, into it uh, to watch it again Walking back into it this time. So my history with Bruce is, of course, I loved him the first two Die Hard films. I'm a, I'm a defender of the second one. Um, I didn't love the third Die Hard film. I thought it was the beginning of sort of, it seemed a little phoned in. Um, and then, of course, I love seeing Bruce Willis and uh, I love seeing Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson in that film. And I love that it came out right after Pulp Fiction. And I got to see Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. Um, and and so another pairing of these two. I was like, okay, uh, but I didn't really like the third one. And I'm down on Bruce Willis. And that was then. But then I was really happily surprised at the time. Then as time's gone on, I've become such a non-fan of Bruce um, that when it came time to watch this again, I was like, ugh fine i'll watch i remember i really liked it and i remember the film was good and fine um i like him here i think he does a really good job yeah overall the uh the what the cast in this like there are just tremendous performances across the board being given here uh robin wright who you know who thankfully uh her career has completely uh had a you know, a real shot in the arm thanks to House of Cards, which she does incredible work in. Uh, and I love Haley Joel cool Osment. To... I mean, Spencer Treat Clark in this film. Um, I th- yeah, it <laughs> was. Joel it's Os- pretty much the same. Yeah, it's it's the same kind of. It's the same uh, type of kid. He uh, looks and, the yeah, same. Doesn't he look Clark like the great. same kid? Doesn't he look like yeah. the same kid? Um, I think I got I got it. Having watched both films in the last couple of years, I've got to give it to Spencer Treat Clark for giving. An incredibly nuanced, an inc- like a, 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 a nuanced and profoundly vulnerable. Yeah, um, the backbone of this film maybe is that performance. Um, yeah, he is spe- he's spectacular. Um, Robin Wright, of I course, mean, their relationship. The uh, uh, you know, Shyamalan is such a big. Uh, he's a he's re- he is really good at building tension. Um, and so when people were going into Unbreak, Sixth Sense was kind of a horror film, sort of. Um, it certainly was tense. It was definitely a thriller. So I think that's kind of what we were expecting when we were going in to watch this again. And even though this is kind of a superhero film, it has the tension. Uh, in, and I, I mentioned it before, far away, that scene where he is sitting at the table with the gun pointed at his father, so desperate to believe and watching the parents start cycling through tactics to kind of to try to get him to put the gun down saying one thing to him and then uh and then that not working and then saying another thing and that in fact escalates it so suddenly he's pointing the gun at David and that like it's yet yeah, like I remember watching that the first time and genuinely having no idea how the hell that scene was going to end or what way it was yeah. going to go I I will say that this is, until Split, this is my favorite Shyamalan film. And yes, it does have mm-hmm. problems. But from the very first, and not, the, I guess, the second scene, the scene on the train where you see the conversation between Bruce Willis and the sports agent um, from the point of view of the kid who's looking back and forth at them, looking down at the ring, he's mm-hmm. whatever, that's a magical scene. That is such a yeah. masterful, masterful choice. Um, it's it, that, it it does seem to be a uh, something that he does a lot is he sets up an interesting shot from a vantage point that is not traditionally used, but then once he's created that interesting shot, he just lets the actors act, and I think he does it to tremendous effect in this film. Yeah, no, that's that scene. Um, I mean, you can pick out the scene. I guess the the great thing about this film is you can pick out the scenes that stuck with you. Um, of all the scenes in the film, the one that stuck out to me the most, and I guess because it's the most superhero scene, is the lifting weight scene. I love yeah. the superhero origin nature of the scene. And again, this predates Spider-Man. This predates really caring about what the person who is doing the amazing feat is going through it is in its own way watching him struggle with can this possibly be happening can this what's going on it is a precursor to toby toby mcguire's in in spider-man yeah it is it is like it is saying hey because again batman was a figure and superman was a figure in those two films 
Clark Kent was certainly a character. Bruce, Bruce Wayne was barely a character. But we focused on the more interesting villains. And the question was never asked, what is it like to have this power? Which is, isn't that what we all did when we played superheroes as a kid? Is is we wanted to be the character? Like I loved I who who was your superhero when you were a kid? Who did you play? Did you ever do that? Do you ever go let's um, play superheroes? I I I, pl- I played fantasy characters. Really? Even as a young kid, you didn't do superheroes at all. Like even as a like a seven year old, you didn't run around and I'm someone. No, to the earliest of my rec- to the earliest of my uh, recollection, even when I was playing make believe, it was. Uh, I'm Benvolio. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was it was just fantasy stuff for the most part. I, I I don't as a child I did not have a tremendous relationship to superheroes. For for me it was Spider Man, and not because of all the good reasons I love Spider Man now, but just because I thought it would be fun to swing like that. I thought it would be like being on a nope. big giant swing. How cool would that be? Um, and this is the first time again I get the sense in this film of what is it like to be the hero. I had never seen that before. And it is so important. Yeah. One of the reasons we're talking about this film is because it's so important to to what the films become later, um, and what all of like Marvel, Marvel and DC films because because of the vantage point that it gives you um, as the character. Um, now, now, let me ask a, you. Yeah, please go ahead. No, please after you. There is an interesting shadow side to the quite like it definitely raises the question of you know what's it like to be a superhero. Um, you know, this movie is, this entire movie is definitively an origin story, but I noticed watching through it again, there is a shadow side to that question, which is what is it like to, and what are the real world consequences of needing to believe in superheroes, not heroes, not necessarily even needing to believe in the battle between good and evil, but needing to believe in uh, in these fantastical things, uh, because while when Bruce Willis, uh, when David ends up believing in himself and accepting his purpose, his depression does go away. But there are some crucial scenes in that case in point. His son, his son is so desperate to believe in this mythic thing that he points a gun at his own father. And then, you know, Elijah himself is so desperate to believe in superheroes that he is willing to kill hundreds of people in order to prove his point. Um, There is, this film is both kind of, it is an homage to comics and, uh, and heroes. And I think in the end, it still says heroes and comics are a good thing. But there is also this undercurrent of look what happens if you let the desperation to see the world through the filter of a comic book. If you let that overcome you, look what happens. And I think there's a, a, to piggyback off of that, there is, as you're speaking about belief, it jogs to mind the idea of weak evangelism. And evangelism become, has become a dirty word in America right now. So it's it's back before it was that word. Um Evangelism and evangeliz- its traditional, its original Greek good message. Yeah, in the, in the uh, and specifically as it pertained to, let's say, 1950s, 1960s Christian evangelism um, in the United States, uh, which mm-hmm. a lot of times would be based on the, if you really think about it, isn't this this, and isn't this this, and isn't this this, and doesn't that follow? And it's one of those things that, that makes sense on a surface level and maybe on the level immediately below, but then would not stand up to much scrutiny. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I'm, I'm I am saying this as a person of faith and 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 someone who who has gone to the layers below. Um, but the idea of somebody who wants to believe so much that they that they subscribe to the well, it must be true, and once you believe that it's true, then everything else falls in line behind it. Do you know what I mean? It's like confirmation bias. Yeah, and everything else becomes justified. Yes. Um, specifically, I love Mr. Glass's uh, explanation for why there are superheroes. One, why do we always want heroes? There have been pictorial, uh, pictorial 
images across time showing people doing these things mm-hmm. in other countries. This is how people tell their stories. And and what we've done in the comic books and the superheroes is an exaggeration of what people actually have and what people actually can do. And it's it's amped up. So while Superman can fly, uh, the real Superman is a regular guy on the ground. Yeah, he's strong. And yeah, he's pretty much invulnerable. But he's not bullets bouncing off of you, lifting up a building, flying but he is like this is almost the real world superman story and yeah and that idea that what we think of in comics is just an exaggeration of what is really going on is is a fascinating thing to me it's a fascinating yeah. concept and, and the idea that and it is absolutely it is absolutely true that i mean essentially superheroes have existed in every culture uh, since the dawn of time, like that is as part of like uh, humanity's shared zeitgeist, the superhero story is universal. Like he's got that dead on. Like we called them Greek gods, right? But what I guess uh, uh, made Greek Greek mythology very appealing to me is they. Let's call it what it is. They had powers. They had like defined yeah. superhero powers, like. He could mm-hmm. run fast. He could do this. He could throw lightning. Like they had specific defined power sets. Oh, that's that they a good could point. Do. Yeah, it wasn't just sort of. It wasn't just sort of. I can do everything. It was no. I do this one thing very well. Yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I shovel well. Um, <laughs> the, the and again, Mystery Men for everything that it is. Uh, did Mystery Men? Mystery Men came out before Unbreakable, I believe, sir. I believe Mystery Men, right. which would make Mystery Men the first movie to do this. Now that for, I ever, forget everything I said about Unbreakable, piece of crap. Don't watch it. It's terrible. Mystery Men is <laughs> the best superhero movie ever made, and everything. No, I think that what Unbreakable gives you, um, in terms of the comparison between superhero joy about superhero and belief, is in the character of Mister Glass. You have someone who believes so hard. You begin to ask this question. Here's a key question. It's a really metaphysical question, and I know that the answer is probably no, but let's play with it anyway. Did sure. Mr. Glass, does Mr. Glass have the ability to create superheroes by believing in them? Because it's interesting, there was no inclination that Bruce Willis faked the accident when he was younger. Bruce Willis even uses that accident as a way to try to sort of convince himself no, 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 this can't be true because I did get injured that one time. But as soon as Glass says, I think you faked it, then you find out that, yes, he did. As soon as Mr. Glass says, I thought that you did this, then, yes, it did happen. In fact, Mr. Glass was making all of these terrible things happen and up arose this. It's sort of a balance of the force or the Joker showing up at the end of Batman Begins Kind of like, I have done this. I'm willing superheroes into existence by the force of my belief. And by making David believe, David has to believe he can do the things before he can actually do the things. I don't... The movie does not say anything that explicitly disproves that theory. Um, I also don't believe that the movie says anything that really that really like pushes that theory forward. So let's say if, you know, in glass, it turns out that your theory is absolutely correct. Um, If it turned, you know, if we find out that we did have this power to essentially create through the power of his own belief, create a superhero. If I then went back to Unbreakable, I would be able to look, watch it and say, no, that actually tracks with everything that's going on here. Um, But I think there are also a whole bunch of other explanations for how it all fell out. Um, but that's an like interesting. I, said, one. I know the I know that the problems the the answers probably no, but it's interesting that it's not just that David it's, has to believe these things, but Mr. Glass has to tell him the things that he should be believing, and then he believes them, and then they're true, and in fact, even him realizing that all these things were true about him, starting with the like the idea that this man has never been sick in his life or never been injured in his life, and he never noticed, you know, yeah, the that's, idea that I, now. So in that sense, that theory would be a way to explain pretty much every problem I had with the plot in this, uh, in this movie. The, uh, 
especially watching it the second time, like going back and watching through it, like this happens a lot with Shyamalan is that he, he does some really fascinating things weaving, uh, you know, his, his entire scripts are just Chekhov's guns uh, that you don't even realize there. You know, he'll plant something this in scene che- for, one for the, and have it come. Yeah. I, I was going to say. Uh, in this case, start doing literally it, yeah. a Chekhov gun in that. Um, but sometimes because of that, we find it straining credibility, sometimes more so than others. The, uh, you know, the twist at the end of the village, there is a, there's definitely a sense of, yeah, if I really strain my suspension of disbelief, I could go with that. Um, and so some instances here, uh, him not realizing, you know, like him having to ask, hey, have I ever been, like, here's the thing. I, if you asked me, when was the last time I got sick? I would not be able to remember. And I'd say, oh, it was probably about nine months to a year ago. But if you asked me, have you ever been sick? I would be able to tell you that answer in like in an instant. Um, like, does he go to the doctor? Does he, he has, has the yeah, doctor ever said, a, well, you have no medical history. That's really interesting. That's, you know. Are you telling me, you know, like in college, when he was working out in college football, yeah, he was able to do amazing things. But like that he never discovered he could bench press 350 before that time. Yeah, like, he was he was he um, was an 18 year old football player who needed to bench press as being part of the football team, and yet he never saw how much he could press. Yeah, and then of course that, and then to me the biggest one is him lying about his injury. In order, like, here's the thing: him deciding to give up football to uh, to stick with Audrey. Um, even though I kind of mocked it a little bit in the the plot, that actually that scans. Um, that makes good sense to me. I think it was you know sure stuff like that happens. That that yeah, and that revelation, um, him recalling that and remembering how much he cared about Audrey, it happened at a wonderful point in the film. Um, completely justified them getting back together on more solid ground. All of that works, but the whole yeah. So in order to give up football, I faked my injury. Because nobody has ever been able to give up football before without having a really, really, really major reason why. That was the one where I was like, okay, this is just a case of you needed to implant doubt in our minds in the beginning of the film about whether or not he was unbreakable. So you clearly had him say, uh, oh no, I totally got injured. And then you just needed a way to justify why he, in fact, didn't get injured. Like, that was the one where um, it doesn't, <laughs> to to uh, to really stretch the title's metaphor, it does not break the plot, but it bends it hard So this in order is to get a, it to fit into position. I don't know which film it was, uh, and maybe it was back when you were defending the Matrix sequels to me and in, in, as being... Just amazing films, um, which I would love to revisit that conversation with with fifteen years, you know, past now. Um, but or maybe it was one of maybe I was watching one of the Studio Ghibli films and I was telling you how weird it was. But you oh. accentuated to me at one point that what one of the things I wasn't understanding was because I was an American audience member and American audiences. Um, that their their stories are based on the play. It all goes back to the Greek chorus, and then and then the interaction of the play, and so it follows a certain logic. And for American, also the uh, and also the short story as well. Yes, which but is which that, is very plot driven. But that uh, Asian audiences are and 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 you go back to to Japanese theater and stuff like that, and and you know Bunraku and 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 that sort of thing, um, and Kabuki theater. It's more based on the song or on the poem, and so mm-hmm. while things may not make sense, while you can watch Akira and it doesn't make sense for my American eyes, it makes sense thematically, and that's far more important than whether or not it makes sense logically. Am I telling the? the it's like. Am I saying it yeah, correctly? It's, it, um, yeah, no, I think you absolutely are. It's it's more about uh, experience than it is about explanation. Uh, you know, with the caveat, of course, that, you know, now me 20 years later is just like, yeah, I'm painting with an extremely broad brush when I say, oh, this is Western narrative and this is Eastern narrative. Uh, obviously, sure. it's, you know, much more of a spectrum. But no, I think you, no, you're right. Yeah, but for instance, when Studio, when Studio Ghibli 
remakes The Little Mermaid into Ponyo, which makes no sense. That is a movie that makes <laughs> literally zero sense. Nothing is explained. It doesn't make sense why people do the things they do, say the things they say. The the that the, at one point the ocean is just turning into fish, and then also, but I I don't even know when if Ponyo's a mermaid or a fish or one of a bunch of guppies. I can't tell you what's going on with Ponyo, but I love it, and I, when I watch it, I feel certain things, and it I I walk away from it feeling kind of uplifted and, and enriched. And so it's doing its job. Um, and so when we look at this, what if this is the dark shadow of a movie like Ponyo, where, yes, it is the superhero origin story, which is very much a Western myth, but the movie and many of, of M. Night's movies is interested far more in the experience of it. And it's the reason I, why we can... I don't know. What's your thought? I, I would say that that's interesting. Well, get, well first, I'd say that's interesting because uh, I actually kind of completely disagree. Um, in Although the one thing is that, yes, he is, he's really great about bringing out individual moments. And we experience individual moments. There is, like, I was realizing watching this film, literally every conversation, um, including one just had, you know, across the dinner table, is... It has weight, tremendous weight, like almost life-changing weight to it. Um, every single moment is fleshed out into an experience. Um, and so you, I, I agree with you in that he does, he's very good about really capturing that sense. However, for somebody who built his career on not just his directing style, but as a like as a writer, when I think M. Night Shyamalan, I think plot. He comes up with some really crazy creative plot ideas. But the thing is, is that they all they all at least strive for serious logical cohesion. Shyamalan's goal is not to just Shyamalan's goal is not to paint like a Jackson Pollock painting which is all about experience, but obviously it's not about, you know, creating any kind of illusion of reality. Uh, Shyamalan's goal is much more about weaving a tapestry with a thousand different threads in it, but then having all of those threads um, all kind of lining up to suddenly form this big, cohesive, identifiable picture. And that is a very difficult thing to do. And he, certainly there are a number of films in which he doesn't achieve it, but the ones where he does are phenomenal. But I think it is not because he he eschews or he uh, not because he avoids explanation, but because he actually finds them really, really well. Um, one of the things that you said you wanted to hit was the scene in the kitchen with the gun and how important that scene is to everything in the film. Because I think up to that mm -hmm. point, you see this family as a sum of its disparate parts and Bruce Willis's relationship with, Audrey and his relationship with his son. Um, I feel like that's the first scene where I really get a sense of them as a family. Um, mm -hmm. And it's in and this fraught moment um, that, oh, well done. From disparate family to desperate family. Um, oh, look at that. Poetry. Like the Asian. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> it's totally not okay that I said that. Um, uh, so the... The thing that I guess I, I come to in that scene is that you have this moment that is the height of emotion for everyone in the scene, but it is the decision that is made by the sun that everything hangs off of. So when I say that the film rises and falls on the performance of, of the actor and also on the character of the sun, um, that boy is the only one that I care about. I meant to care about Bruce Willis and, and, and Robin Wright, like getting back together. And I only care about that as it pertains to the sun. I'm sort of meant to care mm. about, uh, Mr. Glass. And I guess I do because he gives a wonderful performance and it's fun to watch Bruce Willis experience what he can do, but mostly it's fun watching it through the eyes of his son. So mm -hmm. I really feel like the, the, the movie is rising and falling on this one character who, who 
I am relating to. He is my window into the film. So I guess my question is, who is your, who is the protagonist of the film for you, and who is your window into the film? Who is your? Uh, the, that's your a avatar? good question. That's a good question because I was realizing it is an argument could be made for the protagonist of the film being either David or Mister Glass. Like, especially that the film starts with a flashback about Mister Glass's birth. Like the flash, the the childhood flashbacks which are frequently part of a superhero origin film, pretty much all of them are about Elijah. Um, so I'd say my window into the film was still David with this. Um, I thought Willis turned in a tremendous performance. Um, he captured, and a lot of this resonated with me, the sense of waking up in the morning and feeling sad and incomplete. Uh that is a feeling yes. that I've experienced a ton, and I thought Willis captured it with heartbreaking simplicity and quietness. Um, so I'd say that was depression? still probably the... Is this I, a film about depression? In the extent... Um, yeah, in some ways, especially in the sense of that sense of, I don't know what I'm meant to do. Actually, shoot. Okay, last year, or last uh, last year, last episode... Uh, you asked, what is the theme of the movie? Uh, I will now say the theme of this movie to me, you you just hit it on the head uh, for me. It is, the theme of this is about people not knowing what their purpose is, not knowing their place in the world, not knowing their place in the story, or even knowing if there is a story to begin with and what they do to find that place in it. It's what Mr. Glass does. Mr. Glass was, ta- he says himself, the, the, the most frightening thing in the world is not, know, the, is not knowing your place in it. So he is willing to kill hundreds in order to create his own place in it. David's journey is different in that he doesn't know what he's meant to do. All he knows is that he just feels sad because he knows he's not doing it. And the instant that he found his purpose, he woke up that morning and thought, I'm, and that sadness was gone. Um, and that's certainly like when I, when I made the realization that storytelling was kind of like my driving force, um, you know, I remember waking up some mornings, getting ready for the Renaissance fair and doing it. And yeah, the, the sadness was gone on those mornings. Hmm. That's pretty wonderful. Um, I can't think of a better way to uh, to to go out of our discussion. So I I just want to ask you this: on a scale <laughs> of one to five inconveniently placed swimming pools and bad decisions <laughs> to go do your first night of heroics in the middle of a rainstorm, knowing yeah. <laughs> that water might be your weakness, <laughs> <laughs> and also. On a scale of one to five, hey, that kid who committed date rape is hanging out with his parents. I certainly don't want to ruin that, so let's choose someone else. What? <laughs> oh gosh, you're talking. You're talking about the the flashbacks. That, yeah, the other yeah, flashbacks. Yeah, well, certainly that, that one was a. Let's. I, I got to take a second. I got to take a second. That. That one, I was like, go get that kid. Like, before you go get this other guy, go up to that kid's parents and go, hey, listen, I'm not going to turn you into the cops, but like, do you know what your son did? Like, like, just FYI. You got to do something about Yeah, this guy's. Yeah, a, this, is, a, this is what he did. Go ahead. Go ahead and ask him if I'm lying and then walk away. Yeah. Yeah. yeah dude, we got, I got, I mean, take obviously. Care of this other thing. Yeah. Obviously, the other thing of all of the bad stuff that he saw had the most immediate need to it. Sure. But the but okay the way so that, in the, that, on the yeah <laughs> on a, on, a, on a scale on the of, scale on the scale of one to five actually really good decisions and not bad decisions how do you <laughs> how do you rate split I would split uh, unbreakable, unbreakable. Oh, um, sh- the sixth sense that one that we're doing remember uh, uh, yeah yeah oh yeah how do you rate split um I would rate it a four uh I would rate it a rock solid four um. It was both enjoyable and also moving, and it has clear elements of artistry to it. This is not just somebody telling a story, um, you know, to to entertain a crowd, although there's nothing wrong with that. 
Um, this is, you can see the artistry of the director in this, the artistry of the actors, that this is much like, uh, I will, to echo what Elijah says to the guy who walks into his art gallery wanting to buy something for his kid, he says, this is, you're looking at this and you're seeing a toy. This is art. I will say this movie is indisputably, to me, art. And pretty solid art at that. It gets a four. Um, I can't speak as to what, I mean, I think Infinity War is art, frankly. Um, uh, so I am a bad, you know, I'm, I'm, I am a lot I compared to you. You are you are so I love that you have the the poet's soul. I am a a shill and a pop culture junkie. So I have to ask myself hey. this question. Yeah. Um my question that I have to ask is is sorry, my my lovely wife came into the room and gave me a hey, why you been on the podcast so long? Um uh my question that i have to ask is is this a must-see film because it's a four i agree it's a four but is it a must-see do you have to see this one i think yes if you're gonna make a list of 20 superhero films to go what is the superhero genre capable of this i can't imagine if it was a yes. list of 10 maybe it was a list of five this film's got to be on there because it's so different it is what it is so it is indif- it's indisputably in the we will net well with the ex- possible exception of split or glass who knows I can say we will never review another movie quite like this as we talk about superhero films. It is unique in the genre. So I'm going to bump the four up to a 4.5 because of, of its importance in the, in the superhero genre. Mm. I think it's a fair play, fair play. It's, it's a valid thing. So next time on totally super podcast, we're going to review a horror movie that has nothing to do with this. That's absolutely nothing to do with this film. Why are we reviewing it? You're going to find out as we watch uh, from 2017, I think. I think it was only like a, like a year ago. A split. Yeah, it's pretty recent. So I'm really looking forward to that. And that'll uh, be interesting because I've never actually, I've never seen it. So I'm looking forward to. Uh, oh, and I'm looking forward to talking about that. But James, until that James time. McAvoy, James McAvoy is the man. I'm just going to say that. Yeah. He's incredible. Charles Xavier jumps in with Nick Fury and also Bruce Willis in, in this trilogy. So, um, <laughs> In an ultimate team up. Uh, and so won't that be is, a wonderful day? But until then, oh yeah, yeah, no, we do the names first and then I do yeah, the, the names, little Until oh, then, uh, uh, my name remains Justin. And my name remains Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Stay super. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not-safe-for-work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Enlight Entertainment. 